You're listening to audio from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. If you'd like to check out more resources or learn more about our ministry, please visit holycrosstucson.com. Uh, let's, let's continue in our worship now to go to God's Word. And uh, we're, we're finishing up today in John chapter 13, finishing our series in John 13. I'll, I'll start reading in verse 1 and continue uh, to verse 11. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. <clears throat> During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed is not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. That's why he said, not all of you are clean. This is God's word. Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Right? It's one of those Bible stories we may have grown up to memorize and sing as little children. It's the childish, it's so childish that maybe even as I recite those lyrics, you think to yourself, why is he singing? Think that childish song. Why is he reciting those song, that song from such a long time ago? And somewhere along the way, in our maturity and growing up from childhood to adulthood, we begin to believe that the problems that we face are too big for that simple solution, Jesus loves you. Sometimes we think, well, I need a little bit more than that, that Jesus loves me. Not only does the Bible tell us that he loves us, but it also tells us that he won't stop loving us, that he loves us to the very end. And we would know that if we memorized the last stanza in that childhood song, that finishes like this, Jesus loves me, he will stay close beside me all the way. Though he bled and died for me, I will henceforth live for thee. This is one of those songs that I thought back to as I dealt with this passage this morning that we have, in which Jesus washes his disciples' feet, where he shows the extent of his love and demonstrates in this action how far he will go to love those who are his own. And the scene begins with this narration from John, one of his disciples, with this brief line, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Could it be that we think that the love of Christ is somehow not enough to cure us from what really troubles us deep in our soul? I never will forget this conversation I had some years ago with a close friend who was grieving at the time. And she asked me if I had any words for her. She comes to me, not only a friend, but also her pastor, and said, 
do you have any words of comfort for me in this time that I'm going through? And I said, this may sound super simple, but Jesus loves you so much. And she kind of lowered her head and said, that's really great. Do you have anything else? (laughs) I replied, there's nothing more than that. There's nothing beyond the love of God. There's nothing greater. There's nothing that we, we, we graduate to that will then really f- f- uh, fix that problem in our heart and be the solution to our, our greatest longing. You know, I tell this story not, just to, not, not, not to shame you at all, but really to sympathize with you because it's so easy to think that way. We often feel this way, that God is, he loves us, right? Like a, like a family member might love us. And, and he's meaning that he's maybe benevolent to us and wants the best for us. But everything in Jesus' life, everything that was recorded about him, everything that he did and said had one aim, and that was to express the love of God to you. Everything that he did was aimed towards this one trajectory, and that is the pouring out of God's love for those who are his. And so the simple question for us today is, what does this mean? What must this mean? And the corresponding chapter in the book that we're reading along with this series, Gentle and Lonely, offers one solution to that question or one answer to that question of what does this mean. Um, And I'd like to use one of those, but I'm going to add two more because I have to have three points and not just one for today. And so, <laughs> and so here's what this must mean, that he loves us and loves us to the end. One is that Jesus' love is on purpose. Jesus loves us on purpose. It means that his forgiveness is by grace, and it means that his future, or our future, is secure. What does this mean? Jesus loves us on purpose. Where am I getting, at, getting this? Right at the beginning of chapter 13 in our passage John sets the stage for what Jesus is about to do. He's about to wash his disciples' feet. And it's done, though, in the shadow of the crucifixion. Jesus is doing this action in the shadow of the cross. He's about to go and die for the sins of his people. And John frequently mentions in his gospel account the hour that is to come, right? the, the hour that is yet to come. And we are told throughout the Bible that things didn't happen yet because the hour had not come. And here John tells us that the hour has now come. And Jesus, knowing that the hour has come, he performs this action. Throughout Jesus' ministry, as he gained popularity through his miracles and his teaching, the disciples wanted to capture this and capitalize on his popularity and to make him prominent. And, and And Jesus said, my time has not come. My hour has not come. What does that mean? It was just not time. It's not time to do what Jesus came to do. But here in this passage, we learn that Jesus had this deep awareness that all that he was born for, every circumstance in his life, every day that he was alive, was all geared towards one purpose, and now it was time to fulfill it. And so as Jesus is telling his disciples that he loves them, And as he performs this action of sacrificial service and love and humility to them, there was something on his mind. There was something on the mind of Jesus when he washed his disciples' feet. And it was the full awareness that he was about to express the full love of God for his own through this humiliating death on the cross. 
See, the death of Jesus wasn't something that happened to him. Jesus didn't get caught in a snare. He didn't get caught in this spider web and, and killed uh, outside of his own um, pursuit and desire. Jesus tells us, well, the scriptures tell us that everything that has happened to the life of Christ was leading up to this, and he knew it. And as he sits down with his disciples at this last meal, he is aware of that. And what he has on his heart, as John is able to, to know and understand through the revelation of the Holy Spirit, he's able to, to understand what was going on in the mind of Jesus, that he was thinking of his own death. And he was thinking about the love that was going to be poured out on his people. In just a few more chapters, we hear Jesus pray in John 17, in which he specifically prays for his disciples. He says, I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given to me, but not only them, but everyone who believes because of the words that they speak. As Jesus prepared to lay down his life, he had the love of his disciples on his mind, but not only them, but you also. Imagine this, as Jesus is preparing this ritual, this ceremony with his disciples, what fills his mind is the love that he has for you. He does not merely have a kind disposition towards you. He doesn't merely just think well of you. He pursues his own, and he knows that every, every situation in his life and every day of his life on earth was for the purpose of pursuing you and pouring out that love of God on your life. Everything he does is on purpose. His love is intentional. His love is on purpose. You know, what does it mean, this, this short phrase at the end of verse 1, that he loves us to the end? These three words, to the end. It's a phrase that has so much meaning, more than just its three words. It could be interpreted in a few different ways, as different translations might demonstrate. If you have a different Bible translation, you might read it a little differently. What does it mean to love someone to the end? It can mean a few things. It, one, it could be, A, it can mean to love someone totally in all ways. So if you tell someone, I will love you till the end, that could just mean I love you with my whole heart. I love you with all of my affection and all of my passion is for you. Or it could mean to love someone forever. I will love you to the end of my life and to the end of yours. Or it could be, I love you to completion. I, I'll love you until the work and my, uh, and my agenda for you is completely finished. Some multiple choice here. Which one do you think it is? Well, it's a trick question, right? Because it's D, all the above, right? This is, this is that beautiful word that when Jesus says he loved them to the end, it's that word telos. It's this, this beautiful word in the Greek language that doesn't mean just the end of time. It doesn't mean with the fullness of uh, my heart. It also doesn't mean until I'm done with what I meant to do with you. It means all of those things completely, totally, fully. You see, we love until we are betrayed, but Jesus loves despite our betrayal. We love until we reach a limit, but Jesus' love has no limit. We love with a portion of our heart because our hearts are often divided, but Jesus loves with a full heart, an undivided heart for those who are his own. Jesus cannot love with anything but his full and entire nature. 
And that means that he loves us with his whole heart till the end, until his intended goal is completed in us. And he will not waver from that position in the slightest bit. Would you consider that and think about that? The goal of knowing his love so deeply that wipes away all fear, he will not stop loving us until we know that. The goal of wiping clean the guilt and consequence of sin, he will not stop loving us until that is completely wiped clean. The goal of not letting anything get in the way of bringing you to himself, he will not stop until that's accomplished. He will not stop loving you until all of God's purposes for you are completely finished. And this is precisely why in verse 7, Jesus has to say, what I'm doing now, you don't understand, but you will understand afterwards. Because our lives and the things that happen in our lives often seem out of the jurisdiction of Jesus' involvement. So much happens to us and we say, how can this matter in your plans of love for me? How can this be a part of your plans of love for me? And Jesus is meaning to say, just because you don't see how this currently fits into my plans to love you, it doesn't mean that it doesn't fit into my plans to love you. When Jesus says he loves his own and loves them till the end, it means that his love will not fail. His love will not fail. How should we understand that phrase, Jesus loved them till the end? He loved them to the end of their, his earthly life and to the end of their earthly life. See, if Jesus tells us that he will love us to the end, then that means the trajectory of our lives, of those who belong to him, have one ultimate destination, the fullness of God's love, affection, and favor. If you belong to Christ by, by his grace and through faith, if you rest in him, acknowledge him as your savior and put your trust in him, then everything that happens in your life is going in one direction. And it's towards Jesus. Every pain, every sorrow, everything that happens, it, your life is not in orbit, just like try, floating around there trying to grasp onto God. He means to tell us that everything, just like his life was, was, uh, came into the world where he was, was born God with us, the incarnate God. Every scenario of his life, every action, every teaching had one trajectory to pour out the love of God for us. What's happening in, in, in your life? What, what chaos, what, what striving, what pain, what sorrow? He will love you to the end. What disappointments are you dwelling on? What sadnesses fill your mind throughout the day? He will love you to the end. What uncertainties rob you of your joy throughout the day and throughout your week? What things and attitudes and thoughts clutter your thinking? What things trouble you? What, what things uh, uh, discourage you? He will love you to the end. And it's hard to imagine how all of those things fit into God's ultimate plan for us. But he says, you do not understand this now, but you will understand. God will reveal these things to us and know more clearly than by looking at the cross and seeing Jesus dying for our sins. And then we say, God must really love us and love us to the very end. 
What has he held back? What did he reserve for himself? The Bible tells us that Jesus emptied himself of all glory. He gave up everything in order to express the love of God to us and to save those who were his own. Everything he does, his love is on purpose. Everything he does in our life is on purpose, and it will never end. We can further understand this grasp of his love for us in the next point as we move down the story, and that is his forgiveness is by grace. And as we move down this story, we see now, moving from the narration of John to the action and activity that Jesus performs, he begins to wash the feet of his disciples, and Jesus' conversation with Peter provides for us a great teachable moment. Jesus approaches Peter to wash his feet. Peter says, you shall never wash my feet. And in ancient times, feet got pretty filthy. People walked in sandals in the streets that were shared with, with, with carriages and animals alike. And animals didn't go off to the side of the road to use the restroom, if you catch my drift. They just went right there. People would walk through here. Their feet were filled with dust and grime and sweat. They have, must have gotten so filthy. Imagine grabbing a foot that had been walking all day in the streets that were shared with animals. Imagine grabbing that foot. You picturing it with me? <laughs> Grab that foot and you take off the sandal and you just begin to wipe it with a, a wet cloth. And that all it does is it just creates a sort of paste with all of the grime and dung. And Stay with me. Listen, I can't stand the sight of clean feet, right? <laughs> I mean, a clean, perfectly clean, beautiful foot is still disgusting. Imagine taking this kind of foot. How humiliating of an activity this must have been. And that's why washing someone's feet in these ancient times was reserved for servants and Gentile slaves. It was a task reserved for the least admired people in society. And so we should give significant reflection to the fact that Jesus is the one who performs this task. If this is the thing that is reserved for the least admired people in all of society, and Jesus is now doing this, Peter obviously gave it some thought. It's why he spoke up so quickly. Of course, he was prone to speak first and think later. And he does that very thing right here, and he said, You should never wash my feet. Not you, never wash my feet. And Jesus didn't reply with, Watch me, I'm going to wash my feet and you're going to take it and you're going to like it. <laughs> Whether you like it or not, I'm washing your feet. He doesn't say that. Instead, he replies, if I do not wash you, you have no share in me. And suddenly, Peter, thinking through that, says, well, then wash everything, my hands and my feet and my body and everything. Wash it all. And my head. And Jesus replies, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. In the ancient world, much like today, when a person took a bath, he or she was clean until they walked outside in the dust and his bare feet or in open sandals and their feet became dirty. And in order to clean, they didn't have to take a bath again. They didn't have to clean everything again. They just needed to wash their feet. So Jesus tells him, when I wash your feet, I make you clean. One touch of my cleansing power, one touch of my grace will clean you. It will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Verse 10 is a little complicated, but fairly easy to understand. It's when he confronts Peter and says this, if you 
have been cleaned. When I wash your feet, I make you clean all over. It's hard to understand. Uh, it's hard to really work through this, but here's what it means simply. It is hard for sinners to learn to accept that they need a Savior. It's hard for sinners to learn to accept that they need to be washed by God. Why? Because it's embarrassing. Think about this. Have you ever gone to a friend's house only to realize that you walk through the front door and they're the kind of family that takes their shoes off? Sorry if that's, if that's you. It's fine if you do that. But you enter the house, and it's not that the act of them taking the shoes off bothers you. It's that when you realize that you wore your dirty socks that day, or you didn't wear any socks and you have hobbit feet, or you didn't shave your toe knuckles that day, right? And you're like, oh, no, they take their shoes off. See, you're not troubled because they take their shoes off. You're troubled because your feet. And the anxiety that fills me is I know after a day on my feet and sweaty socks that every step I take is going to leave behind that moist footprint on their tile of my sweat from my foot. Nobody else? This is, these are the anxieties that fill my heart all day. It's embarrassing. And we say, no, let me keep my shoes on. Let me cover that up. I don't want to show you what's underneath there. We will work hard to prove ourselves. We will engage in spiritual activity. We'll study some profound truth just as long as we don't have to ever surrender to Christ our greatest insecurities. Just so long that we don't ever have to show him and tell him, I need you completely and I am filthy until you clean me. We will do anything to try to please God and earn his favor rather than to accept the fact that we need a Savior. And Jesus makes his point clear here. It's not at first about your religious acts. It's not first about your degree of obedience. It is not about your precision or of theology or the regularity of your service. It's not even about your humility, obedience, or even your niceness. It is first about him and what he does for us. And if we cannot accept that, then we will have no share in him. And we can appreciate Peter's enthusiasm where he misses the mark a little bit in understanding. At least he is saying, well, then take all of me. I don't want anything getting in the way of me having a relationship with you. And so we can admire Peter's response here, even though it's a little bit chaotic and misunderstood. What he is saying is then, if, if you have to get in my heart, then take it all. If I have to be clean to be a part of you, then clean me thoroughly. Receiving God's love requires from us only the surrender to allow Jesus to wash us. And that means that if we desire to have any part in the love of God, we must confess our sin and he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us of all, from all unrighteousness. One touch from his cleansing power cleans us completely from all of our sins. And it will never come from us hiding our sin. It'll never come from us concealing our embarrassments. It'll never come from us running away from the truth that he needs to reveal in us, and that is we need a Savior. And when that happens, though, when we say, then clean me, I am a sinner in need of your grace, is in a sense that we have like had a bath 
We have been washed clean. Jesus was, Judas was a disciple who did not have his, who he, he actually had his feet literally cleaned by Jesus. This is amazing. But he never entered into the meaning of what Jesus was doing. He never came to Jesus in repentance. He never came to faith in Jesus personally. He never did that personally, but he, he, he did it outwardly. He was a part of the Christian community. He was one of Jesus' co- closest followers. But even Judas's failure can act as a blessing to us in the form of a warning that we can be present with Jesus and in community with Christians and that never guarantees our salvation. But his failure is also an invitation to us, not just a warning, but an invitation to come to Jesus, to hear his words, to confess our sins, to rest in his mercy, to see how easy it is to receive that kind of cleansing. As Jesus makes it very clear, no, Peter, this isn't about what you make available to me or what you do for me. I must do this to you. Judas had the best teacher in the whole world who's ever lived. He had the best pastor who has ever preached. He had the best counselor and theologian. He had the best public servant. He was a disciple of the greatest that there ever was. And yet he never entered into the meaning of what Jesus was doing and what we need. He hid it. And so this is an invitation to us and a confrontation. His love is a grace. And when we come to him acknowledging our need, there is something, there's something good that happens that we can be sure of, and that is our future is secure. We finally look at this last point, that our future is secure. Jesus loves his own to the very end. And that isn't to say that his love is not without opposition. There are so many things that seek to oppose God's love and to rip us from God's love. Think of all the ways in your life that the love of Christ has been challenged through difficulty throughout the years. Think of all the things in your life that have sought to rip you from this rest in the love of God. There are spiritual enemies out there. We are told that Satan is personally involved in thwarting the plans of God to redeem his people. He's personally involved in having an agenda of robbing us of our joy, our life, and our rest in the Lord. We are told that the devil prowls around like a lion seeking whom to devour. We are told that we are tempted in sin, that he, he seeks to confuse us and to rob from, rob from God those who belong to him. We are told that we wrestle not with flesh and blood, but we wrestle with spiritual powers that contend for our heart every single day. And we are told that none of those things will ever be successful. Not once will it be successful in taking away the love of God. There are circumstances outside of our control, aren't there? I mean, there's sickness and loss. There's death of loved ones. There's loss of income or health. There's loss of friendship. There's all these situations that result from being in a broken world that aims to shake our security in the future. There are things that happen to you and have happened to you that have made you doubt and question God's love for you. 
But still, not one of those things can thwart God's plan and agenda to bring you into completion of the love of God for you. You know, there's an enemy, another enemy that I'm most aware of, and maybe more, you're more close to this one than any of the others, and that's enemies within our own heart. The, our drives and our dreams, the things that, that draw us away from God and put our affections on something else. It's the heart idols. It's our impulses, our passions. It's the things that we want. It's evil thoughts in our minds and fantasies and desires in our hearts. It's, it's temptations and agendas that don't fit God's agenda for us. There are all of these enemies that are saying, come away. Is God really loving to you? Will his love really be enough for you? And all of these opposing things, not a single one will ever have victory over God's love. Not a single one will be able to accomplish what Jesus has accomplished on the cross. These enemies and oppositions are not only numerous, but they are so strong. Do you feel that the strength of these opposing things in your life to draw you away from God's love, to confuse you? I'm sure you do. They seek nothing short to utterly ruin and overthrow God's grace. And so far, not a single one of these enemies has been able to thwart the love of God for you. And it will never come to a time where it happens. Not once. It will never happen because Jesus has loved his own in the world and he loved them to the end. He will love us to the end. Not a single enemy will ever win because Jesus loves his own and he never gives up. Would you reflect deeply on that love today and this week, thinking about all the opposition to that love and all the challenges to his love and seeing that he has never failed and never will?